start with a knock-knock joke that one of my daughters used to tell me. Knock-knock. Interrupting cow. Moo! I don't think anyone likes getting shut down when they're trying to speak, right? We don't like to be interrupted. We like to get out our thoughts. You know, one of the things that happened with Jennifer and I as we were dating and in the marriage is one of the reasons why we got along is because we thought the same way and it was one of those things that we could predict each other's thoughts. But then as we were together, that became interrupting each other's thoughts because we assumed we knew what the other person was going to say. It's like, I haven't finished yet. And so our cycle of communication goes like this because we're in sync and and we're hearing each other. And as the more we hear each other, the more we understand each other. But then we start to interrupt each other because we know. And so we've got to catch ourselves. And then, you know, so communication is this cyclical thing. Sometimes there's inequity in conversation between speakers. Um, I've been going to court for a while to to stand with, with the young man who broke into our church. And at the very first thing, the judge wouldn't let me speak. He says, you're not a lawyer, you can't talk. I'm finally next month going to get to speak as a witness. But I don't get to speak unless they give me permission. There's inequity between parents and children. There are times, and I have to watch this myself, my, especially my older daughter, she wants to express herself, and there are other times when I'm just, it's like, I don't want to know the reason why you didn't clean your room, I just want you to go clean your room. But sometimes she does, she absolutely does need the opportunity to say what's on her mind, and i got to balance that out. You know, we all have different positions in society, but we all expect to be respected and have equal voice as human beings, even though we don't have the same positions in society and same authority. But what happens when we try to impose our human desire for equity of voice to our conversations with God? Does God want to hear us speak? Does he? Yes, God absolutely wants to hear us speak. But am I equal with God? No. And see, that's the situation in Job 40 and 41 that we're into today. See, Job has been demanding equity to speak. And we're not going to touch on Job's responses today. We're going to do that on Wednesday for our Ash Wednesday service, but we're going to look at what God is saying. Again, just like last week, we've heard all the different opinions that Job's friends had on God, and we're going to let God speak for God. So Job chapter 40, I'm going to read uh, verse 1 and 2. It says, The Lord answered Job, Will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Let him who argues with God give an answer. Then jump up to verse 7. God continues. He's 
speaking to Job from a whirlwind. Get ready to answer me like a man when I question you. You will inform me. Would you really challenge my justice? Would you declare me guilty to justify yourself? Do you have an arm like God's? Can you thunder with a voice like his? Adorn yourself with majesty and splendor. Clothe yourself with honor and glory. Pour out your raging anger. Look on every proud person and humiliate him. Look on every proud person and humble him. Trample the wicked where they stand. Hide them together in the dust. Imprison them in the grave. Then I will confess to you that your own right hand can deliver you. Now, before we go deeper, let's take a moment and just pray. Lord, as we are confronted with who you are, let us also see who we are so that we can be transformed. We ask this in your name. Amen. The first thing that we see here with Job, and it's something that's still in our society today, humans think we are gods. Humans think we are gods. God's questions to Job. He says, Job, are you looking to correct me? Job, are you going to prove that I'm unjust because of what happened in your life? If so, I love this word. This is literally what he's saying. You better man up. When he says, face me like a man, that's not just a word for being a male or even a human being. He says, you better face me like a strong warrior. You better be strong with the might, with your might, because we've already seen one thing that all Job's friends agreed on was that God was mighty. They just didn't agree on how he used his might. He says, Job, if you're going to talk with me and correct me, you better be strong with your voice. And Job, you better be strong in your glory. Job, you better be so strong in these areas that you are able to defeat any enemy if you're going to stand face to face with me. It's kind of like going to court. If I was going to court, I would want my lawyer to be just as well trained, just as well prepared, just as confident, wear just as nice a suit as the other lawyer. And God's saying, if you're going to face me, you better be up to it. Because I'm mighty. My voice is strong. I stand in glory. Can you stand with me, Job? See, this is tricky. As we said before, God does want to talk to us. But Job, at this point, is not just looking to pray to God. To pray is to petition another that is greater than myself. That's prayer. I'm petitioning somebody that's greater. Job has been looking to confront God. And God says, in order to confront God, you must be God. Only the Son stands face to face with the Father. Only the Spirit stands face to face with the Son This is the first temptation of humanity, isn't it? Genesis 3, 5. 
The serpent says to Eve, In fact, God knows when you eat, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Humans want to be God. It's not just Job. It's not just Adam and Eve. Today, we choose our own truth in our society. We say, well, this is sexuality. This is what human rights are. This is what life and death is. And when it begins, for me and for others, I choose life and death. We choose the definition of love. We choose the definition of justice. Don't we do all those things in our society? And isn't all that stuff God's purview? A pastor asked me this week, he said, is health care a right? He was really wrestling with this, and we talked about it. Is health care a right? Because that's something that's being debated right now. Bernie Sanders just won the, the Nevada caucus, and part of his platform is Medicare for all. It's a right from his standpoint of view. Now, I'm going to give you my opinion I'm talking word of God, opinion, but illustrative, okay? My, this is what I told this other pastor. I said, my starting premise, my opinion, is that we have it wrong in the United States and in the world, and I've shared this with you before, about rights. There are certain things that I would call inalienable gifts from God. There are certainly some things that might be Enable gifts as part of our social contract with each other in society. But they're all gifts. So that's my first reframe. Should health care be gifted to the people or arranged by all the people to care for all the people? My answer is depends on whether or not the society can afford it. But I think it would be good if society could afford it. Because life is from God. And it's a gift from God, not a right from God. But life is far more than universal health care. Life is far more than stopping abortion. You know, I I talked to this pastor and I said, you know, um, at the same time we're having this debate about health care, Individuals, families, businesses, and even religious institutions, the church being included in that, in the United States, have gone from being helpers of the poor to saying, well, the government can do it. So, in some sense, we humans are making ourselves a God, saying, I have the right to health care. You know, and anything less is unfair. Well, we talked about fairness before. Life isn't fair. But God is just. Justice is hard. So what does God want me to do with the gifts? I'm commanded, thus I can be confident in my actions. And we're getting back to scripture here. God says, do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with God. God. 
Not be God. (laughs) Do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with God. Don't try and be God. Philippians 4.6 Don't worry about anything, but in everything through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. Before I ask the government for anything, I better ask God. In Hebrews 4.16 Therefore let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive our rights. Oh wait, that's not what it says. Let me approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find help, find grace to help us in time of need. See, when I pray, yes, I can be absolutely confident. I should be. I should be fervent, not quitting. I can pour out my frustration and hurt to God. The Psalms are full of that. But I need to remember, I'm addressing someone greater than me. But someone greater than me who is willing to give me help. Who is willing to give me mercy and grace. But God is not there to take my orders or defend his righteousness. Now, I would hope that some of us, if not most of us, are already aware that I'm not God and you're not God. But it's not unreasonable to ask the question, how do do I know that human beings aren't the greatest living being in the universe? Prove it. Can it be proven that there is something or someone greater than me? And God answers that, yes, I can prove it. God says, human beings can't be the greatest living thing in the universe because human beings aren't even close to being the greatest thing on the earth. And that's the rest of God's argument to Job. He says, we're not even the greatest thing on this planet. Ellen Davis, she's a professor of Bible and practical theology at Duke Divinity School. She just spoke at Houghton College, one of our colleges, this this last week. And she said this, this is a quote. Fearing God is the exact opposite of human arrogance. Let me say that again. Fearing God is the exact opposite of human arrogance. You can fear God properly only if you know the reality of God and only if you know that you are not God. What we're going to see, God is going to use the example of two creatures that both the readers of the book of Job and Job himself would be totally familiar with to show both what God is like and what human beings lack. Now, in our Bibles, we call these two creatures, in your translations, depending on your Bible, it'll say, Bohemoth and Leviathan. And the fact that that's the translation that we have in our Bible shows already 
that human beings lack the knowledge of God because we can early translators couldn't figure out what those things were. See, here's what's going on with these verses that we are st- stuck with, these, these weird words. A monk or priest is translating the Bible from Hebrew into Latin. That person is probably an expert on languages, but has never been to the Middle East or North Africa. So he is not familiar with any of the animals there, and he gets to the word Bahima, and he doesn't know what it is. And so he's instructed to just take the Hebrew letters and put them into their Latin equals. So he gets Bohemoth. And then in the next chapter he hits the Viathan. And he just does the same thing. I don't know what that is. So Bohemoth and Leviathan are not translations. They are called transliterations. Because the translator, early translators didn't know what they were referring to. And over time these just kind of became mythology. I've studied mythology from all over the world. <laughs> and this has happened before. In the New Testament, we have the word baptize, which is just transliterating the, the Greek word baptizo. Why didn't they just say what the word meant? The word means to dip, but a lot of churches weren't dipping people. They were sprinkling people. So they said, oh, we better not say dip. Somebody might get mad. Let's say baptize. Then they can figure out whatever they want to do. <laughs> So, Bohemoth and Leviathan are not mythical monsters. They're not dinosaurs. They're not sea monsters. These are animals that Job and the readers would know. So, verse 15, Job chapter 20. I'm going to change the word right there. Now, before I get to that, let me... This is going to make sense. I don't know if you took... When you get into college and you take your probably your second semester of English class, one of the things you always hit is T.S. Eliot's poem, The Love Song of J. Alfred Frufrock. Okay. You don't have to know what that poem is. But there's a section in it. It's a, it's a great poem, and it's got a lot of symbolism in it, and most people don't get it. There's one section in there where he's talking about orange smoke, and it doesn't make any sense until the teacher tells you, that's a cat. And as soon as the professor tells you that orange smoke is a cat, it all makes sense. Because the smoke is doing everything that a cat does. And he's just saying, yeah, this cat is moving like orange smoke. And that's what we have here in Job. So, verse 15. Look at a hippopotamus, which I made along with you. He eats grass like cattle. Look at the strength of his back and the power and the muscles of his belly. He stiffens his tail like a cedar tree. The tendons of his thighs are woven firmly together. His bones are bronze tubes. His limbs are like iron rods. He is the foremost of God's work. Only his maker can draw the sword against him. The hills yield food for him while all sorts of wild animals play there. He lies under the lotus plants, hiding in the protection of marshy reeds. Lotus plants cover him with their shade. The willows by the brook surround him. Though the river rages, Bohemoth, the hippopotamus, is unafraid. He remains silent even if the Jordan surges up to his mouth. Can anyone capture him while he looks on or pierce his nose with snares? Okay, the simple answer is usually the best answer. This is a hippopotamus. This is something Job would know that he has seen. He's saying the hippopotamus is large 
and strong. It eats grass, it lives in the water, and it has no natural predators. Lions don't attack hippos. Hippos cannot be domesticated by humans. They did live in the Jordan River even up until the time of Jesus. The hippopotamus has nothing to fear. God is fearless. On the one hand, that is a picture of God. God has nothing to fear. And on the other hand, that proves that humans are not God because we, by necessity, fear the hippopotamus. The hippopotamus is the world's deadliest large land mammal. It kills an estimated 500 people per year in Africa. Hippos are aggressive creatures and they have very sharp teeth. If you get under one at up to 2,750 kilograms, they can crush a human to death. Hippos capsize boats. In 2014, in Niger, a boat was capsized by a hippo and 13 people were killed. That's the hippo. We're not, how can I be God? I'm not even a hippo. I like comic books. And one of the uh, characters that I like and had a good run on Netflix is Daredevil. Daredevil is known as the man without fear. He's also the man that gets beat up all of the time. He may be fearless, but he's not mighty. (laughs) He doesn't have reason to be fearless. He's got a lot of strengths. He's got a lot of skills. Should be Daredevil, the foolhardy, (laughs) who sometimes gets stuff done. (laughs) But God doesn't fear because he defeats all his enemies. I have quite a few scriptures up here, because as I got into this, I thought this was so cool. At first I was kind of reluctant. Oh, I don't want to compare God to a hippo. Think of hippos as big and fat. And God says hippo is strong. Hippos defeat all their enemies. The first enemy that I thought of was the devil. First Peter 5.8 tells us, Be sober-minded, be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for anyone he can devour. Can a lion devour a hippo? Nope. (laughs) The devil is also pictured as a serpent in Genesis 3.15. And God, in cursing the serpent, says, I will put hostility between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. The serpent's pretty deadly. And God says, well, I'll crush your head. We think of lions and snakes as just deadly. We make them the symbol of the devil. And God's not afraid of the devil. God in Jesus crushes the devil. What's another enemy we have? Death. Psalm 55, 4 and 5 The psalmist writes, My heart shudders within me. Terrors of death sweep over me. Fear and trembling grip me. Horror has overwhelmed me. 
1 Corinthians 15.26 says, The last enemy to be abolished is death. (coughs) What about death? You know, just for a moment at the transfiguration that we read about today, three disciples got to see the full power of Jesus. But what did Jesus think of death? John 10, 18, Jesus says, No one takes it, that is my life, from me, but I lay it down on my own. I have the right to lay it down, and I have the right to take it up again. I have received this command from my Father. And in John 2, 19 and 20 through 21, Jesus answered, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it up in three days. Therefore the Jew says, This temple took 46 years to build, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. See, I'm not going to deny the the grief and possibly even fear that Jesus had as he prayed in Gethsemane. He didn't want to just jump into the cross and the death that was going to go through, the torture that was going to go through that. But was he, but look at the confidence. He knew the enemy was going to be defeated. And he passes that along to us, those with faith in Jesus. Hebrews 2.15 says, And the, he frees those who were held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. 1 Corinthians 15.54 and 55. When this corruptible body is clothed with incorruptibility, this and this mortal body is clothed with immortality, then the saying that is written will take place. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where death is your victory, where death is your sting. <coughs> Jesus defeats the devil. Jesus even defeats death. Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. So it's now since the children have flesh and blood in common, Jesus also shared these, that through his death he might destroy the one holding the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who were held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. He takes care of death and the devil all in one with his death on the cross, which is fulfillment of Psalm 23, 4. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, Sometimes that's translated through the valley of the shadow of death. I fear no danger. You are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. God crushes all his enemies. See, God is unequaled. And God's offer is to be for me instead of against me. In Job chapter 41, we get our second animal, starting in verse 1. I'm not going to read the whole chapter. It says, Can you pull in a crocodile with a hook or tie his tongue down with a rope? Can you put a cord through his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? He will beg you for mer- Will he beg you for mercy or speak softly to you? Will he make a covenant with you so that you can take him as a slave forever? Can you play with him like a bird or put him on a leash for your girls? Verse 8. <coughs> Lay a hand on him and you will remember the battle and never repeat it. 
Verse 12. I cannot be silent about his limbs, his power, and his graceful proportions. Who can strip off his outer covering? Who can penetrate his double layer of armor? Who can open his jaws surrounded by those terrifying teeth? His pride is in his rows of scales closely sealed together. One scale is so close to another that no air can pass between them. They are joined to one another so closely connected they cannot be separated. Verse 25, when Leviathan, when the crocodile rises, the mighty are terrified. They withdraw because of his thrashing. God is fearless and God is peerless. He's peerless. He has no equal. Leviathan is the crocodile. We actually have several different references to this creature in the Bible. Psalm 74 and Isaiah 27 talks about Leviathan being a twisting serpent. And I don't know if you've ever seen video of an alligator, <coughs> or excuse me, a crocodile. They're taking their prey and they turn over in the water. Ezekiel 27 calls this creature the monster of the Nile. That's a crocodile. Now, there is one difficulty in the Job passage. I didn't read it. But Job's description... Uh, attributes to this <coughs> creature fire, seemingly like breathing fire. And that's one of those things that throws us. This is the only passage in the Bible that attributes fire to a crocodile. And that makes people think, well, maybe this was some kind of dragon. Um, two possibilities on that. One, uh, this could be an allusion to a Babylonian deity that also you know, would be crocodile form-ish. Um, the other thing could be from a practical level is that when crocodiles splash around in the water, they make the mist, the water fly up like spray, and that's kind of reminiscent of smoke. It's not that the water is on fire, but it's like the tumult is like bubbling water. Okay? Don't let that trip you up. Every commentary, even old commentaries from a long time ago say, this is obviously a crocodile. We just got to figure out what they're talking about with the fire stuff. So, what does he say about a crocodile? Why is a crocodile peerless? You can't catch it like a fish. In fact, most of the weapons of Israel couldn't even hurt it. Like the hippo, you can't domesticate a crocodile. You can't play with it or make it a pet. A crocodile will not beg you for its life. If I managed to touch a crocodile, I would only get to do so once. It has tough scales. It has many sharp teeth. And crocodiles regrow their teeth. Strong muscles, very strong jaws. Job says, people run from crocodiles and they don't want to wake them up. I looked up some biology of crocodiles. It says, crocodiles do not necessarily set out to hunt humans, but they are opportunistic killers. In Africa alone, there are several hundred crocodile attacks on humans per year, between a third to half of which are fatal. Worldwide, crocodiles are estimated to kill about a thousand humans per year, many more than sharks. A crocodile has no peer in the water. 
And God says in verse 10, No one is ferocious enough to rouse Leviathan. Who then can stand against me? Job, if you're not tough enough to take on a crocodile, why do you think you can take on me? The other thing I like to read is King Arthur legends. In uh, Sir Thomas Mallory's The Mort de Arthur, one of the ways he describes the great knights is a knight peerless. But it's funny, all these, there are several knights that are knights peerless, and yet they still get beat. <laughs> all knights have a fatal flaw. King Arthur is called the flower of chivalry. He's a knight peerless because he exemplifies all that a knight should be. Arthur gets beat all the time. Lancelot is a knight peerless because he has the greatest physical endurance of any knight. But he has a weakness of lust and he gets him in trouble. Gawain has the greatest physical strength of any knight. He's a knight peerless. And he can't control his anger. And he gets beat. Sir Kay is a knight peerless. He's the sentinel of the land, but he doesn't know when to keep his mouth shut, and it gets him in trouble. Palamedes is a knight peerless, almost equal to Lancelot, but he covets, and so he gets beat. There's no such thing as a peerless human, except one. His name is Jesus. Who says in John ten twenty eight, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Jesus says, I'm peerless. And I give you eternal life. I beat the enemy of death and I put you in my hand. And then my father who is greater than all puts my hand in his hand. Because we're one. Jesus is peerless. God is unequaled. And God's offer through Jesus is to use his terrible and frightening unmatched power to keep me alive. There's a movie came out, I think it was in the 80s, called Fearless. starred Jeff Bridges. Interesting movie. His character is in a plane crash, or getting ready to experience a plane crash. They know the plane is going down, and everybody on the plane is, of course, freaking out. And in Jeff Bridges' mind, he realizes, this is the moment of my death, and I'm not afraid. And the plane crashes, and he doesn't die. He survives. And because he's calm, he's able to lead other people to safety. And it starts messing with his head. Because he becomes fearless of death. And he starts doing crazy things like walking on the edge of buildings and walking through traffic and crashing cars on purpose and eating food that he knows he's allergic to.
but he's still not dying. And at one point, he looks up at the sky at God, and he says, you want to kill me, but you can't. And as he's going through this mental problems, he finally realizes at the end what's going wrong with his head. He realizes that he's not fearless. He's foolhardy. And he just had this traumatic experience where he was able to guide a bunch of people to safety and he didn't have anybody to save him. We've got someone to save us. And his name is Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Psalm 99. The Lord reigns. Let all people tremble. He sits on his throne between the cherubim and the earth quakes. The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted above all peoples. Let them praise your great and awe-inspiring name. He is holy. The mighty king loves justice. You have established fairness. You have administered justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God and bow in worship at his footstool. He is holy. You are a forgiving God and an avenger of sinful actions. Exalt the Lord our God. Bow in worship at his holy mountain. For the Lord our God is holy. Amen.